So let's pray and then we'll read the text. Lord God, we ask for your anointing and favor upon your word as it goes out today, as it is read and explained. Lord, would your Holy Spirit please apply the truth of this passage to your people, especially as we get to focus on that wonderful ordinance that you've left with us, the Lord's Supper. We pray that it might become richer and richer to us every time we partake of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke 22, starting in verse 7. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on, until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed... The Son of Man is going, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who is going to do this thing. Now, we find ourselves in this text on the Thursday before the death of Jesus Christ. He's going to die on the following day, on Friday. Satan has already entered into Judas, We find that from the beginning verses of chapter 22. And Judas has already gone to the religious leaders in order to betray Jesus and to find out how much they'll give him if he'll betray the Lord Jesus unto them. Now, two weeks ago, we dealt in depth with verses 21 to 23 about Judas's treacherous betrayal. So we're not going to go over that ground again. And verses 7 to 13 talk about the preparation for the Passover meal, which is pretty straightforward. I'm going to make a few comments on that, but we're not going to have to take a lot of time with that. So the main bulk of our study is going to consist of verses 14 to 20. Now let's take a look at the introductory paragraph, verses 7 to 13. Jesus gives instructions to Peter and John to go into Jerusalem and to prepare the Passover meal. And of course, they want to know, well, Lord, where are we supposed to do this? Jesus didn't own a home. The disciples didn't own a home in Jerusalem. And so they're wondering, okay, we'll do it, Lord, but where? It's a good question. And so the Lord gives instructions. He says, just go into the city and you're going to find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now that would be unique because usually that was the women's job. So if you found a man carrying around a pitcher of water, Okay, well, that's got to be it. That's my sign. (laughs) They're to follow that guy until he enters the house. And then they're to say to the owner of the house, which is probably a different guy than the one carrying the pitcher of water. They're to follow him right in the back door, go into the house. When they see the owner, oh, excuse us, excuse us. Um, The teacher says that we're supposed to observe the Passover here. Where are we supposed to do that? And he'll show you a large furnished upper room. That's where I want you to prepare the Passover. Interesting. Now, what did they have to do to prepare the Passover? Well, they had to prepare unleavened bread. They had to make sure they had unleavened bread. They had to take a lamb and have it killed by the priests at the temple. And then they had to bring the lamb back and roast it 
because that night they're going to eat the entire lamb and they have to also make the uh, the bitter herb mix that the bread will be dipped into and they have to make sure there is wine. And they have to, of course, set the table and get everything ready. So Peter and John are going to take care of all of that. But what I find interesting here is that Jesus seems to kind of cloak his instructions with a veil of secrecy. I mean, he doesn't say, go into the city and go to 316 Main Street, knock on the door, Mr. Brown will answer, and tell Mr. Brown that the teacher, Jesus, needs to have a place for his disciples to observe the Passover. He gives no name. He gives no address. He simply says, you're going to see a man carrying a pitcher of water. Just follow that guy. Go into the house. Ask him where to observe the Passover. Now, why all of... It's kind of a cloak and dagger kind of a situation, you know? Why the secrecy behind it? Why so ambiguous? I believe it was because Jesus did not want Judas to know the location of the Last Supper because he knew that Judas was betraying him. And Jesus has too much really important information to communicate to his disciples on that night. It's really important that Jesus has that last supper with his disciples. It's really important that he teaches them the contents of John 13, 14, 15, and 16, which are going to happen at that place. And it's really important that Jesus offers his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And if Judas interrupts this situation too soon, None of that's going to be able to take place. And so Jesus, to make sure they will not be interrupted, does not give any information that would tip off Judas to tell the chief priests and the officers where to come and arrest Jesus. Now, one of the things that we often wonder about is, so did Jesus prearrange these details about the guy carrying the pitcher of water and all of that, was it prearranged or did he just know that information supernaturally? And of course, the text doesn't tell us, does it? There's nowhere in the Bible that tells us which of those options was actually the true one. But the truth is, it really doesn't matter. Really doesn't matter in the end. What matters is that Jesus was protecting this time so that he would have uninterrupted time with his disciples to communicate these glorious truths of the Word of God. Now, as we go to our text, we're going to focus on the Lord's Supper institution. Jesus instituted the very first Lord's Supper observance at this Passover meal. And so there's three things that I want you to understand about the Lord's Supper. Number one, it replaces the Passover meal. Number two, it recalls his vicarious sacrifice. Number three, it represents the new covenant. Those are three things that we're going to draw out of the text this morning. So let's take a look at the first one. The Lord's Supper replaces the Passover meal. Now, the actual words of Jesus that institute the Lord's Supper are in verse 19 and 20. Those are his famous words that we often recall before we observe the Lord's Supper together. But you need to remember that Jesus did that at a Passover meal. It was at a Passover that he changed everything. He took bread and wine. He didn't take lamb and say, this is my body. He took a new element. He took bread and said, this is my body. He took the cup of wine. This is my blood. But he did that at a Passover meal. Now, the Passover meal was something that Jewish families would celebrate every single year. And it was something they look forward to. Kind of like, you know, how we look forward to Christmas and Easter. They're just holidays that we, we, as a kid, you grow up. There's lots of anticipation about it. Well, that's the way it would be for the Passover meal. And the original Passover meal that was celebrated in Egypt was eaten in haste because they didn't even have time to let the bread leaven. They just had to leave very quickly. But this Passover meal would linger and linger, it was several hours long. And at this meal, the children would ask their father questions. And that would give the father an opportunity to explain to them what happened on the very first Passover. So this was a family affair. It was a Jewish holiday. It was something that lasted several hours long. And I want to just briefly give you the order 
of a regular Passover celebration. And there's basically 10 steps that they would go through. Number one, there would be an introductory prayer of thanks, just thanking God for His goodness and protection and providence. Number two, the first cup would be drunk. They called this the, tr- the cup of blessing. And there would be four cups of wine that were diluted for this occasion. Remember that everybody's partaking, whole families, and so you don't want children and parents getting drunk. So you'd have diluted wine. The first was a cup of blessing in which you would recount all of God's blessings towards you. Number three, there'd be the washing of the hands. This was both both practical and ceremonial. The Jews did this for ceremony. Before they ate, they would wash their hands. Number four would be the eating of the bitter herbs. And so Peter and John would have already made a paste where they took fruit and nuts and bitter herbs and smashed them together and made a paste out of them. And then they would dip that unleavened bread in the bitter herbs and eat it. And that was to remind them of their bitter slavery and oppression when they lived in Egypt. Number five, there was the singing of Psalms 113 and 114. Number six, the second cup of wine would be drank. And then the father would explain the meaning of this particular festival, this meal. Number seven, that would follow with the eating of the meal. They would eat the lamb. They would eat the unleavened bread. Number eight, the third cup of wine would be drunk. Number nine, they would sing Psalms 115, 116, 117, and 118. So a lot of singing happened and a lot of prayer, a lot of thanksgiving. I'm I'm sure it was a really fun night to observe. And then number 10, the fourth cup of wine would be drunk, and then the evening was concluded. And they wouldn't do this bang, 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 bang. There's lots of conversation going on and dialogue and laughter and joy. And so you'd string this out for two or three hours as a family. Now, what I want you to really understand about all of this is that the Passover meal was a type of Jesus Christ. Now, do you know what I mean when I say a type? A type is like a a symbol or a picture of something that would occur later on. It's something that prefigured something else. For example, Noah's Ark prefigured Christ in the sense that only those who went into the Ark were protected from God's judgment. And if we get into Christ, we are protected from God's judgment. Let me show you this from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. It says, Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Now, who is Christ, according to this text? It says he's our Passover. Christ, our Passover. So the Passover celebration that they had been celebrating for hundreds of years, every year, was something that was looking forward to a fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the picture. This is just a picture. He's the reality that fulfills all of it. So you need to understand that if you're going to understand the Lord's Supper celebration. The Lord's Supper replaces the Passover meal. Now, there are two ways in which the Passover typified something else. Number one, the Passover typified our deliverance from the world. And number two, the Passover typified our deliverance from God's judgment. Now, let me tell you this story. You probably know this story already, but I'll just retell it. The children of Israel were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. There was a pharaoh who was a cruel man who ruled. He was the king of Egypt. And he had set up these taskmasters over the people of Israel who made their life miserable. He demanded that they uh, make so many bricks a day. They had a quota that they had to arrive at every single day. But he wouldn't give them the straw to make the bricks. So they had to scour throughout the land of Egypt looking for the straw. Then they had to make the bricks and they had to make enough every single day or they'd be whipped. And they were just moaning and sighing and groaning and crying out to God. And Exodus chapter 2 says that God heard their cry and had compassion on his people. And he raised up a deliverer to deliver his people from that suffering and bondage. 
You remember the deliverer's name? Moses. That's right. Moses and his brother Aaron went to Pharaoh and they said, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they might serve me. And do you remember what the Pharaoh said? Forget you. (laughs) I'm not letting him go free. And so God had to convince the Pharaoh. And so what he did is he started bringing these plagues. There are 10 of them in all. And they consisted of all kinds of things like bringing gnats and flies and bringing darkness over the whole land and um, locusts and frogs filling the earth. And every time the Pharaoh would say, okay, well, I guess you can go, but this far. And then he would change his mind and say, nope, nope, you can't do it. So God would bring a heavier plague. Finally, after nine plagues, God said, I'm going to bring one more. And this one is going to set you free. I am going to go through the whole land of Egypt on this particular night, the 14th day of Nisan, which was the first Jewish month. At midnight, I'm going to strike down the firstborn of man and beast, and then Pharaoh will let you go. But he said, in order that the children of Israel are not struck dead, as well as all the children of Egypt, this is what you need to do. You need to take a lamb that's one year old without defect. You need to kill it at twilight, which is about the hours between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. Kill it during that period of time and then take its blood and sprinkle it over the top and sides of the door. And then you need to go inside that house. Don't go out all night long. Stay inside. And that lamb is to be roasted and the whole family is to consume the entire lamb. And if you'll do that, when the destroyer comes through Egypt, he won't touch anybody who is inside of that house with the blood over it. So that's exactly what happened. At midnight that night, there was a great cry throughout all of Egypt because the people saw, even from the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, all the way down through, through animals, there was, the firstborn was dead throughout all the land, and there was this great cry, and Pharaoh says, Go, just go, get out of here. We're all going to be killed unless you just go. And so the children of Israel were delivered. Of course, Pharaoh changed his mind one last time and went after him. But you remember what happened to him. He was drowned. Well, his whole army was drowned in the Red Sea. And so God's people were delivered out of their slavery and out of their oppression in Egypt. Now, what Christ did is the fulfillment of that picture. Because we too are delivered out of the world, out of this present evil age, the Bible says. I want to show you several scriptures from the New Testament, excuse me, that show how Christ fulfills that aspect of the Passover. So the first one is Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Paul writes to the Galatians, Galatians 1, 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Now this is the interesting part. You might expect him to say, so that he would deliver you from hell or from wrath or from punishment. It says, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. So it's true that Jesus did die for our sins to rescue us from his wrath to rescue us from hell. That's all true. But this is another aspect of the work of Christ. He died to rescue us from this present evil age. How does that happen? Turn over, turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 13. Colossians 1.13 For He, God, rescued us from the domain of darkness. That's the present evil age. That's the world system. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, when God calls a person, what He does is He snatches them, rescues them, takes them out of one kingdom and plants them into another. Did you know that you were born into the kingdom of Satan? That's the kingdom you used to be a part of. When you were saved, God took you out of that kingdom and he put you into the kingdom of Christ. No longer are you under the dominion of the devil. Did you know that? 
The devil cannot force you to do anything. You're not under his power. You're under Jesus' authority and his dominion. You've been rescued. Isn't that great? Rescued out of that kingdom, put down on this kingdom. That's wonderful. Look, go over to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's take a look at another aspect of this. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Paul says, And you, writing to the church there at Ephesus, were dead in your trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this, what? This world. You formerly. This is what was true beforehand. Not anymore. This is your past life. In these sins, you formerly walked according to the, the course of this world system. According to who? The prince of the power of the air. Who's he talking about? Satan. Satan is the prince over this world. You see, just like the Pharaoh was the king of Egypt, so Satan is the king of this present world system. Egypt represents the world. Pharaoh represents Satan. Paul says in Ephesians 2, you formerly walked according to this world system. It was according to Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. That's not you. This is the lost. Among them we too all formerly, I love that word formerly because that means it's no longer the same. This is the way it used to be. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. If we had time, we would go into the next few verses, which are some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, but we don't have time. I have to restrain myself there. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, of course, he doesn't mean every single person in the world because believers don't lie in the power of the evil one. But all of the lost, all the unregenerate in the world do. So, what did God do? God delivered us from the present evil world. He took us out of that world and transferred our citizenship to a new world where Jesus reigns and Jesus is king. So never, never mistake your identity for someone who belongs to this world under the reign of Satan. Not true. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not true about you. You are a child of God. So that's the first way the Passover typified a beautiful New Testament truth, our deliverance from the world. Secondly, the Passover typified our deliverance from judgment. Israel was delivered from Pharaoh, but Israel was also delivered from the destroyer. It speaks about a destroying angel that God sent throughout the land at midnight to kill the firstborn of man and beast. Only those with the blood on the door were delivered from that judgment. Right? And I believe this points to judgment day. There's going to come a day when God is going to again, in a sense, go through all the world and He's going to destroy not just the firstborn, but everyone who does not have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to their souls through faith. You see, it was the firstborn that were passed over as long as the blood was applied to the door, but it can be us today that are passed over in God's judgment if we have taken the blood of Christ and appropriated it. If we have made it ours, if we've taken our faith like that hyssop branch and sprinkled ourselves with his blood. In other words, it's not just good enough that Christ died for sinners. Christ has to die for you. You have to believe that Christ died for yourself and that you have entered into the benefits of his death by faith in him, personal faith that appropriates what Christ accomplished on the cross. It's not good enough that your mom and dad believe that stuff or your sons or your daughters believe it or your brothers and sisters. You must believe upon the person of Jesus Christ for yourself. What made the difference between the person who was passed over in judgment and the person who wasn't on the first Passover? Was it the fact that the Israelites were a little bit better than the Egyptians? 
little bit more righteous? Smarter? Did they have softer hearts? The only thing that made the difference is that they applied the blood to the door under which they sheltered. That was the only difference. The only difference. Are you sheltered under the blood of Christ this morning? I mean, that is so important. It is so important that you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that your whole trust is not in yourself or your supposed goodness or your righteousness or your law-keeping or anything like that. Your trust is in Jesus. That's what made the difference. Now, we call this, when the Lamb absorbed God's wrath so that the people of Israel would be passed over, the New Testament word for that is propitiation. You understand that word as a theological term. It occurs four times in the New Testament. It's vital that you understand this concept. We may not use that word ordinarily, but you need to understand this. Propitiation means that a sacrifice has been made that turns away God's wrath. In the Old Testament Passover, a lamb was a sacrifice that was made that turned away God's wrath. But of course, it couldn't actually turn away God's eternal wrath against that sinner. It was just an animal. But it pictured another lamb who would come one day, who would actually and forever turn away God's wrath from all who put their trust in Him. So that's what propitiation is talking about. Now, what if an Israelite killed the lamb and ate the lamb, but they just forgot to put the blood over the door? Would that be good enough? No. What if Jesus died for sinners? Is that good enough? Does that automatically save? Not unless you apply that blood to your own soul, your guilty soul, the soul that has sinned against him. And unless you apply it, it does no good that he died out there on that cross 2,000 years ago for sinners. He must be your Savior, your Lord, your treasure. So, that's the first aspect of the Lord's Supper. It replaces the Passover meal. There's no more any, any reason to observe the Passover. The Passover was a Jewish feast that was fulfilled in the cross. The Lord's Supper replaces as the new institution, the new ordinance that Christ has given the church, the old Passover meal. Secondly, the Lord's Supper recalls a vicarious sacrifice. Now, the Passover, go back to Luke 22. The Passover is described in Luke 22, verses 14 to 19. The Lord's Supper is described in verses 19 and 20. But there are two words in verses 19 and 20 that I want you to concentrate on. Super important words. Here are the words. For you. <laughs> Simple, right? For you. Look at them. When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is what we mean by vicarious. Vicarious means something that is done in someone else's stead or in their place. A vicarious sacrifice is one done on behalf of somebody else. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. And the glorious truth of the New Testament is that Christ is our substitute. You know, in the Civil War, there was a law that was enacted that somebody could actually pay somebody else to be their substitute and go to war on their behalf. And sometimes that person would be killed in the line of duty. Jesus Christ came into the world as a substitute. Sometimes the older theologians call him a public person. Do you know why they call him that? Because he came as a representative. He wasn't coming for himself. He came to represent a certain people. Now, who are the people he came to represent? Well, sometimes the Bible calls him his sheep instead of the goats. 
Sometimes the Bible calls them his bride. Sometimes the church. Sometimes the elect. They are those people who he set his love upon before the foundation of the world. And Christ came into the world to get them, to save them, to seek them, and to bring them home to himself. So Jesus came as a public person. And I want to just show you some, there are several here, several texts I want to show you that show the substitutionary vicarious work of Christ. The first one we get from an Old Testament text. It's Isaiah 53 and verse 5. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. You see the substitutionary nature of what Christ did coming out there? It wasn't for himself. It was for us, for our sins, for our transgressions. Now let's go over to the New Testament. And let's look at Romans chapter 5. In verse 6 of Romans 5, Paul writes, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Then verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 6, he died for the ungodly. Verse 8, he died for us. Substitution. And then pass over to Romans 8, verse 32. Two chapters over, or three chapters over. Verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Vicarious sacrifice. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is the verse that whenever we're taking a new Christian and we're discipling them when we're using a discipleship manual, that I wrote a few years ago, we always have them memorize this verse as the very first verse because it helps them to understand the nature of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Their substitution again. It's everywhere, isn't it? It's interlaced all the way through the New Testament. Everywhere you go, you find this principle. The Christ is a substitute for his people. 2 Corinthians 8 9. Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Or that famous, famous verse, Galatians 2 20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So you can insert your name there. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have repented of sin and if you're trusting him alone, put your name in there. He loved Brian and gave himself up for Brian. Put your name in there. He loved you, gave himself up for you. Maybe it'd be helpful if I put this into a little story. Let's say that you, in your younger days before you were converted, went out joyriding. And you decided you're going to take your car as fast as you can go, just to see how, how fast it will go. But um, anyway, so you're, you're driving through town, you're driving down Main Street about 10 o'clock at night, and you're going 120 miles an hour. And of course, it's a 25 mile an hour zone. And a highway patrolman sees you and he drives up behind you and he stops you and he says, I'm impounding this car right now. I can tell you're drunk and I'm taking you to the county courthouse. You're going to go talk to the judge. So you stand before the judge, but you think, hey, I am in luck because the county that I was arrested in, the judge of that county happens to be my dad. This is a piece of cake. He's going to let me off scot-free. But then you start thinking, well, but I know my dad. Man, my dad's a good judge. He's a good man. He never punishes the innocent, and he always punishes the guilty. And I'm guilty as sin. 
So I know he loves me, but I still know I'm guilty. What I don't know what's going to happen. And you start to get a bit nervous. So you go before the judge, your father, and he says something like, um, I understand that you were doing 120 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone. Is that true? Yes, it's true. No use lying. I mean, they got it on radar. They can prove that I was going that fast. Yep, I'm, I'm guilty, your honor. So the, the judge says, well, that'll be $1,000 or a week in jail. And you don't have any money. You're broke. And so it's off to jail with you. So the bailiff comes up, starts escorting you away to jail. And then the judge says, wait a minute, wait a minute. He takes off his judge's robes and he walks down. He pulls out his checkbook and he starts writing a check for $1,000. And he hands it to you. You see, he both loved you and he was just. It wasn't okay for, for us to commit that crime and go free without a penalty, without a payment being made, was it? If he let you go scot-free, that would be unjust. But if he made the payment, there's nothing that says that the judge couldn't do that. And so the judge exercises justice and he also exercises his love and mercy at the same time. And that's what happens in the cross of Christ. Jesus takes the blame for every rotten, vile, corrupt thing that we've ever done in our lives. And he credits us with his perfect, righteous life and says, I'm going to allow you to be treated the way I should have been treated, and I'm going to be treated the way you should have been treated. We're going to change places here. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is all about. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, before we leave this particular point, I want to point out one or two other things from Luke 22. Verse 19 tells us, Luke 22, 19, when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do it in remembrance. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to remember the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that in the Lord's Supper, the actual flesh of Jesus is eaten, and so Jesus is actually being sacrificed again and again and again and again and again, perpetually until the end of time. They believe that the Lord's Supper is actually a sacrifice itself. Christ is being sacrificed over and over again. Is that true? This tells us, he do this in remembrance of what he is going to do. Um, Hebrews 10, verse 12, I think will put the death knell on that idea forever. At least it does for me. Hebrews 10.12 says, But he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus doesn't need to be sacrificed over and over again. He was sacrificed once for all time, and that was enough, because it was perfect. It was perfect. Now let's move to our third major point this morning. The first one, the Lord's Supper replaces the Passover meal. The second one, the Lord's Supper recalls his vicarious sacrifice. The third one, the Lord's Supper represents the new covenant. Let's look back at Luke 22 and verse 20. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant. Now what in the world is a covenant? It's important to know that if we're going to understand how Jesus' blood is the new covenant, right? A covenant is a solemn binding agreement. It's a promissory oath. Promises are made when you enter into a covenant. Binding promises. It's the closest thing maybe that we have today is uh, signing a contract. If, if you've ever bought in a house, you had to sign a contract. You, if the bank was giving you the money to buy the house, you signed a contract saying you're going to pay them back with interest, right? And it usually was spread out over 30 years or longer. And basically you're signing your life away, but you had to put your signature to that piece of paper and giving them rights 
all kinds of rights if you didn't come through. They could take your house away. So there was a binding solemn agreement that you entered into between two parties. And in the Old Testament, covenants were ratified by the shedding of blood. When a covenant was made, blood was shed. Think about the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15. If you recall that, um, Abraham had to kill these animals and cut them in two and lay them out on the ground, and then he walked sort of a figure eight between them. Or actually, God did the walking. Abraham was asleep. But he had to shed blood for that covenant to go into effect. And later on, when God made a covenant with the whole nation of Israel, Moses had to offer burnt offerings and then take the blood, and he would sprinkle the blood on the altar and then sprinkle the blood on the people. Do you know what that signified? The altar represented God. He was part of that covenant. The people, they were the other party in the covenant, and both of them were bound now to these promises to each other. The blood sealed them and made those promises binding upon them. Well, the new covenant is also ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died, the new covenant went into effect. So what is this new covenant, and why is it called a new covenant? How is it any different from the old covenant? Look back with me to Jeremiah 31. Because this is going to answer your question. Yep, Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. And you might just mark these verses. These are super important verses in your Bible. They're actually quoted in the book of Hebrews again. Extremely important that you understand what changed between the Old and the New Covenant. Because you don't live in the Old Covenant. You live in the New Covenant. Okay, let's take a look at this. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming. So future days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant, the old covenant. Well, what is that old covenant? It's the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Do you remember what covenant he's talking about now? This is the Mosaic Covenant. We have that spelled out for us in brief in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. We'll look at that in just a minute. This is the Mosaic Covenant God made with them at Sinai. The Ten Commandments were sort of the charter of that covenant, God's moral standard. Let's keep reading. The covenant which I made with them when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. In other words, this is the new covenant that I'm going to make after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Now, having read this, keep maybe keep your little bookmark or whatever there, because we're going to come back to it, but then go back to Exodus 19. And let's look at the first covenant, the old covenant. Exodus 19.5 Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now let's try to answer this question. What's different about the new covenant from the old covenant? And I'm going to give you three things. Number one, the new covenant is unconditional. The old covenant was conditional. Look at the terms of the old covenant here in Exodus 19. Verse 5, if, that states a condition, doesn't it? If you do this, I will do that. What did they have to do? They had to obey his voice. They had to keep his covenant. If they did that, then, God says, I will do this. 
you promise to obey my voice and keep my covenant? Well, I promise if you do that, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you my own possession among all the peoples. And what I'm going to do is make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, there was the part of the nation Israel, their binding agreement they, they entered into, and there was God's part, His binding agreement that He entered into. But notice it was an if-then covenant. If you do this, then I will do that. Back in Jeremiah 31, what kind of a covenant is it? Is it an if-then covenant? Do we find that kind of language there in Jeremiah 31? Not at all. What we find there is an I will and you shall covenant. Right? Let's go back to it. I told you to put a place marker and I didn't do the same thing. (laughs) Jeremiah 31. Notice the words, the terms. Verse 33. I will put my law within them. And on their heart, I will write it. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Is there a if-then statement anywhere in that contract? Not at all. It's not a conditional covenant. It's an unconditional covenant because God has pledged himself to do all the things in the covenant. That's the first way it's different from the old covenant. Secondly, the old covenant was a bilateral agreement. The new covenant is a unilateral agreement. In other words, there were two parties in the old covenant, God and Israel, right? Both of them made made binding promises to each other. In the new covenant, there are no promises that the people of God enter into. In Jeremiah 31, there's not a single thing that the people of God promise to do. God promises to do everything. God's going to change their heart and write the law on it. God's going to cause them to know the Lord. God's going to forgive all their sins and all their iniquities and remember them no more. There's not a single thing that the people of God promise to do. God promises to change them and to forgive their sins and to cause them to know Him. So it's a unilateral covenant instead of a bilateral covenant. And then thirdly, it's a saving covenant. If you go over to 2 Corinthians 3, we're going to see that the old covenant was not a saving covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me just point a few verses out to you. Here we go. Starting in verse... Uh, verse 4, 2 Corinthians 3, 4. Such confidence we have through Christ towards God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter. What he means by the letter is the old covenant. But of the Spirit. For the letter, the old covenant, kills But the Spirit, the author of the New Covenant, gives life. But if the ministry of death, what's he talking about? The Old Covenant. The ministry of death and letters engraved on stones. Now that's Sinai, right? That's the the Ten Commandments, which are part of the Old Covenant, came with glory so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation, what's that again? The law, Old old Covenant. If that um, has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. So Paul refers to the Old Covenant as that which kills the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. It was not a saving covenant because the people could not keep it. They could not perfectly obey God's voice. They promised that they would and they violated it. They could not be saved by it. The new covenant is a saving covenant. Those people who enter into this covenant are saved from wrath. Their sins are remembered no more. They're clean and washed in the sight of God. So, when we take the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is sort of reenacting what God did to bring us into the new covenant. God had to leave heaven. 
He had to come into the earth. He had to live a perfect life. And then he had to voluntarily lay down that life on the cross to ratify this new covenant by the shedding of his blood so that when you come to believe in him, you enter into a unilateral covenant, a saving covenant, and an unconditional covenant. God saves you by grace. Not by works, not by your performance, not by your obedience to law. It's by his grace that you are saved forever. And the Lord's Supper typifies that. It pictures that. It it shows us the grounds of that new covenant. So let's, let's sum up what we've learned this morning about the Lord's Supper, the very first Lord's Supper. We've understood now that it replaces the Passover meal, and it fulfills all that the Passover pointed forward towards. We've also seen that it recalls a vicarious substitutionary sacrifice on the part of Jesus Christ for our sins. And we've also seen that it represents this new covenant that he's brought us into, which is unilateral, unconditional, and saving. And so in just a few minutes, as we eat and drink, as we do every Sunday, I want you I want you to let these rich truths flood your mind and heart. If you've ever been afraid that I don't know if I have what it takes to, to keep on, to persevere, to, you know, to, to do the things God wants me to do, look to what Christ did. Rest in him. Come to me, he said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, I'll give you rest. Rest in him. Rest in Him. He will give you the power. The power of the Holy Spirit to do all that He desires you to do. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, rejoice in Him, worship Him as you take the supper. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then come to Him this morning. Put your trust in Him. Jesus said, come to me. You don't do that by walking an aisle or raising a hand. You do that by faith. You do that by appropriating what he did on that cross to your own soul. Do that. You can do that right now. Let's pray. Father, if there are those in our midst this morning who are still unsaved, would you draw them? Work in their hearts, Lord, to draw them to the Savior. May they appropriate the redemptive work of Jesus Christ to their guilty souls right now. And say, Jesus, you are mine. I trust you. I turn from a life of sin and embrace you as my own. And Lord, for those of us that you've saved, I pray that you would heighten our joy and heighten our worship. In your holy name, amen. Amen.